confession, join a procession. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Prayer for the cause of sainthood of Bishop Iger. O God, thank you for the life and holiness of your servant, Venerable Frederick Iger. I pray you honor for the title of saint. He dedicated himself completely to missionary activity, to make you known, love, and serve by the people who you love. Lord, I pray through Venerable Frederick Iger's intercession. For the Catholics of Michigan, may they have the mission seal of the apostles and the resources necessary to reach every intended soul to build up the body of Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Hello, everyone. Sorry about last week, but um, as my brother Mark would say, I was poorly. I was poorly. So, and people have not been before. Hello. Um, let me just edit slightly what was whispered to you, so people who forget that my hearing is really good. Many of the classes are standalone, um, but they often do relate to things that have gone before, but I don't think you'll find that you're sitting there, that when I first started studying philosophy, I spent the first month in the class thinking, what the hell's he talking about, what the hell's he talking about, what the hell's he talking about? <laughs> Then I stopped listening, and I started reading books about the subject. So, the other thing is, if it's not clear, don't hesitate to ask questions. Um, because last week we didn't have class, and the week before, um, which um, <coughs> I started off on answering a question that I'd been, I'd been asked, and it ended up being the whole session. So, because, as you know, I have that expression, I've never found a tangent I didn't want to go off on. <laughs> But I do have another question that somebody asked me. So, this one will not, I emphasize, will not take me off on a 45 minute talk about something completely different. So, does everybody know what <coughs> this word means? What that is? Monstrance. <laughs> <laughs> who, who's, show of hands, who says yes? So, who doesn't? Who has no who? Who doesn't know? Who doesn't know? Right, okay. Right. The word monstrance is the word that we give to the receptacle that holds the host when we put the Lord on display. So, most of the time, traditional ones. It looks like a sunburst, as in S-U-N, but of course the Lord's in the centre of it. So the weekend, we had adoration. Um, we have uh, more than one monstrous here. In fact, <coughs> in St. Monica, there's how many downstairs? Four? There are three. Three. And then the one we use? Uh, so two downstairs and one upstairs. Okay. The, uh, the word monstrance, so that's what they're called. The, the large one we normally use, the one for benediction, um, is a church monstrance. The little one that I use during the week is a chapel monstrance. Uh, it's from a convent. Mine happens to be from a convent. But they are small versions of others. Now, you see different ones nowadays. You'll see them in the shape of Our Lady and the post that's here, obviously on the womb. You'll see all sorts of other strange, weird and wonderful shapes. So the work... 
There's an English word demonstration. Right? There's an English word monstrous. Right? The root of this word uh, monstro is Latin for to show. So a demonstration is when people together get together. In fact, in French, a strike is called a manifestation or a demonstration. So people showing what they think about something. Uh, monstrous is because it shows like that now. It's got a connotation of not being pleasant now, but that's not really what it originally meant. So that's that's the word monstrous. Okay? There you are. That answered that question. Hopefully. Roger, did that answer that question? <laughs> what was the question? The question was, <laughs> from you, what's the difference between the little thing and the big thing? And I managed to work out that you weren't talking Sorry. about Phyllis and Mike, for example, the little thing and the big thing. Never mind Phyllis, I'll explain to you later. Big one. Right, so before we went off on a tangent and then didn't have a class, <clears throat> what we had been looking at is the stuff on this board here. So, <clears throat> three-legged stool, what the church is based on, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, magisterium, we haven't talked about that really yet, those three things are woven together. Um, sola Scriptura, who wants to remind everybody what Sola Scriptura is? Scripture only. Do we hold that? No. Does it make sense? No. If you were going to defend it, what? how would you defend it? John, how would you defend that to Protestant relatives if they said it's all Sola Scriptura, that everything in the Bible is, is all you need to know? Okay, moving on. No. No. Yes. And if they said to you, we don't agree with that. Have you got, can you remember some of the things that I said were, the, were more obvious about that, about why that's a problem? Does anybody remember? Where is it in the Bible? Right, that's one. Where is it in the Bible? Right, that's the main thing to point out to people that the Sola Subscura can't stand up because it's not in the Bible. It doesn't say in the Bible anywhere that um, only Scripture is, is all you need. Now, is everything you need for salvation in Scripture? Yes. Yes, yes it is. It is, absolutely is. Canon of Scripture, that's the list of books that are in Scripture, which I'm going to touch upon tonight. But we did talk about types of literature that are in Scripture, um, where, they, where they fit in. Some of the types were? Poetry. Poetry. History. History. Music. Music, yeah. Apocalyptic, yes. Letters. Law, excellent. Thank you. That was the one, because I listened to two weeks ago, and that was the only one that people didn't come up with was, was law. Letters, of course, is one. And then we looked at inspiration. Does anybody remember what, what inspiration is when it comes to um, the authorship of scripture? Remember the paintings, the two Caravaggio paintings? Okay, it's the spirit guiding. Yeah. Does that mean that the, the person is a robot? No. no. So how how is someone inspired to write? What happens? Their spirit becomes inflamed. 
Right? And then what happens? They're guided by the Holy Spirit. Physically? <laughs> Does the Holy Spirit... Remember the two paintings? Have you got the two yeah. paintings? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's the difference between the two paintings. The Spirit is holding yeah. the hand on the one and the other is whispering in his ear. And which is the right one? The whispering in the, the whispering ear. The whispering in the ear. That's right. What, hap- what happens is, if God is <coughs> inspiring me to write a message... He will do it differently from the way he would inspire Cheryl to write the message. We take our own life experiences and we write things in different ways and um, we use different images as, as well. So that was inspiration. Salvation history, which I didn't write up there because it's all about salvation history. How, why are we studying history? Church history? Because church history is salvation history. That's why it's important that we look to see how the church how it unfolds because the church is the unfolding of the, the message that uh, Jesus gave. Holy Bible. Um, we talked about the general groupings here. Law, the New Testament, law, history, wisdom, prophets. and the New Testament, history, following epistles. Catholic epistles, prophetic, what does Pauline epistles mean? Thank you, written by St. Paul. Catholic epistles? Catholic epistles? Okay, thanks to the former principal of a large high school, you're not supposed to remember things from two weeks ago. <laughs> All right, sorry. Um, Catholic epistles are the ones that are written generally, not written specifically to 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 people. Or by Paul, of course. Okay, now, so we ended up two weeks ago with hopefully coming to the, the conclusion, none of you jumped up and said, no, that's completely nonsense, Father, that in order to understand how all these different types and the things that they say, how they all work, that we needed a guide. Do you remember, a, um, and I might use it again later today or tomorrow, or next week, um, <coughs> that thing I wrote up talking about if somebody found this in 2,000 years' time, would, how would they understand what shut your face was, step up to the plate, etc. You only, you only know that because it's been passed on to you, tradition. And if somebody says, this is what they meant, this is what this underst- you understand this to mean. You need a guide in order to... Can you pick up Scripture and read any part of Scripture and understand what God's trying to convey to you? It's possible, Cheryl, absolutely. But it's also pos- possible that you would completely Miss lose it. the plot. Right. So, for talking's sake... Um, Prophetic in the New Testament, which is really the book of Revelation, the book of Apocalypse. How many of you have read that? I've heard it. How many of you have read it? Right. How many of you think you understand it? <laughs> Does anybody want to tell me what they think it's about? Future. What's, yeah. what's going to happen? It's about the Mass. It's about Mass. The book of Revelation is about showing us what the Mass looks like in heaven. That's what John is seeing. 
That's why Scott Hahn's book about the book of Revelation is called The Lamb's Supper. And when you read the book of the book of Revelation starts off with talking about how the local churches are failing and then goes on to talk about what the the mass looks like in heaven. So when we are at mass, which is opening a door to heaven, that's what we are participating in. All those thousands of angels that we can't see with our own eyes, although there have been people who have been able to see that. If you remember in the book of Revelation, the lamb is on an altar, but he's also the center of the sacrifice. And there's no light needed because he is the center of the New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is heaven. That's what the book of Revelation is, is really all about. Anybody who's listening to this, who thinks it's got anything to do with predicting the end of the world, or who Hitler was, or anything like that, that is all complete nonsense. There are no hidden messages in the book of Revelation. There's no secret codes in the book of Revelation. Because otherwise, this would be nonsense. We have a guide. The guide is Holy Mother Church. And she doesn't hold things back from us. We're told everything. Sometimes we would prefer probably not to be told everything, but we're told everything. Now, okay. Do you remember actually when I was saying about this, the, near the end of the last class, I talked about photographs, and John said he's got photographs going back to three generations? Yeah. Yes. And we talked about, um, according to who, if they're not, it's not written in the back, and he said, well, because that's been handed down to me, that's been handed down, down to me, and I trust the source. John gave an example there of the pictures are scripture in his family, tradition has told us what it is, and he trusted the source, which was probably his parents, or his grandparents, or both, trusted source. That's why this all works together. That's why you can't have, not have, you, can, you can't just have one of them. <coughs> That's again why that sola scriptura doesn't work. You can't have uh, uh, the Carthusian monks. The Carthusians are the only the only monks that were never never had to be um, updated in their behaviours because uh, well now I was about to go on one of my huge tangents there. Anyway, the Carthusian monks when they meet together to eat, they're not allowed to talk to each other. And it used to be, uh, certainly in the great, ch- the, the Grand Chartreuse, which is in Switzerland, their first house at St. Bruno form, their stools that they eat on only have one leg. Because you have to, all the time, be concentrating on what you're doing and not on what other people are doing. Try that at home with <laughs> any of your children or your grandchildren who are far too interested in whatever other people are doing, get them a seat with just one leg. <laughs> and you will find that their focus will be much more on not falling on their backside. But you can't have a one-legged stool. The other thing is, I never mentioned this, but it's something that I'm just going to now start talking about magisterium. Is it likely that God would give us all these works, all these different kind of works, and then just say, and just make it up to go along. 
point. Do not think God would also give a guide. I don't know if this ever happened to, to you. My father, when we were little, my dad used to work on the, the trains that go, went at the time, some big plane now, between Scotland and England. They would collect all the mail and they would sort it overnight on the trains and then they would collect the mail from the middle of England and they would sort it on the way back up to Scotland. My dad did that for decades. And Crewe, which is right in the smack in the middle of, of Great Britain, um, was a place where there was like 18 lines, train tracks, and the trains would all change. So the men would be often stationed in Crewe overnight and things like that because of the, the mail coming from different parts of the United Kingdom. And there was a, a toy shop in the, this place. And my dad went there so often, the guy knew my dad's first name. Right? My father would buy us toys and often they would have no instructions. <laughs> it's a little bitty difficult to work out how I'm supposed to put a toy together if you don't have instructions. If you don't have instructions for scripture, you come out with some very, very strange, strange things. That's why you need to have an authentic guide for understanding scripture. As, as a quote that I keep using, if you don't know the context, you set up a pretext. Okay, so that brings us up to now, where I'm going to um, just have a quick look at the word revelation. Now, my catechism reader is not here. Phil's not here. So, Kitty, would you like to be? Would you? Would you like to be my catechism reader? Uh, article 50, please. Yes. By natural reason, man can know God with certainty, certainty on the basis of his works. But there is another order of knowledge which man cannot possibly arrive at by his own powers, the order of divine revelation. Through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself and given himself to man, as he does by revealing the mystery his plan of loving goodness formed from all eternity in Christ for the benefit of all men. God has fully revealed this plan by sending us his beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Could you just read that, the first sentence again, please? By natural reason, man can know God with certainty on the basis of his works. Thanks. Um, now, you'll meet people before we get into Revelation, you will probably all have met people who claim to be atheists. They're not. They're agnostics usually, but they don't know the difference in the word. An agnostic is someone who doesn't really know. An atheist is someone who is absolutely positive that there's no God and will try to talk people into believing there isn't a God. They're rare. So the most famous one of them in recent times would be Richard Hawkins, Dawkins, who's an English a biology professor who um, quite he would rather he did this on TV in an interview he was more willing to accept that aliens put life on planet earth than God did he was more more willing to accept that that's how much he's against God now you said you heard it in the catechism that God can be known naturally by man do you all accept that? You definitely do, because you, you and I have spoken about this, right? So, um, do you all accept 
that by looking at the world, I mean with open eyes, without an agenda, that you see that there's something more than yourself. Right. Okay. You will meet people who will try to deny that, but there's no point in getting into an argument with them because it doesn't make sense to try to think otherwise. You sometimes meet people and they'll say, well, we live in a simulation. Well, that's not, you can't even have that discussion, right? But this is all a simulation because how can I prove you otherwise? So if somebody says that they're in a simulation, just pat them on the head and say, on you go, Cardinal. Okay, so divine revelation is, as Kitty read out, an utterly free decision. God's revealed himself and given himself to, to man. That is a, a very short sentence, but that describes an amazing amount of love. There is no other <coughs> religion that believes in that level of love from God. Islam doesn't. Hindus don't. Buddhism doesn't. It's only Judaism and, well, Judaic Christian belief that God, for reasons that we don't understand, apart from because of his love, that God's love between the Father and the Son, <coughs> talk about the weekend, his love so strong between the Father and the Son, his person, the Holy Spirit, is so overflowing that he created humans so there would be more people to share it, share it with. Not for his sake, but for our sake. That's an amazing thing. That that's, uh, should stagger us in our minds how much that, that God's love is. So, he revealed himself. So, could you read 51, please? God revealed his plan of loving goodness. To please God in his goodness and wisdom, to reveal himself and to make known the mystery of his will. His will was that men should have access to the Father through Christ. The word made flesh in the Holy Spirit and thus become sharers in the divine nature. Thank you. So, as I was saying at the weekend, as I said, it was Ascension Sunday. That's why it's so important to understand what's going on in the Ascension. That Jesus takes our humanity, his humanity, takes humanity into the life of the Trinity. And by so doing, means that it's possible for humanity to indwell in the life of the Trinity. That's what's just been summed up there. So that's the, the, the revelation from God. And how did he reveal it? He revealed it through his scriptures, but also through his sacred tradition. Right. So let's move on to what is the magisterium. Now they're very, they're all tied up together, those three, as you will all have noticed. Uh, Kitty, could you read out 85, please, in the catechism? And I will do um, a, a class on the catechism. I just want you to get used to the catechism. So, 85, please. The magisterium of the church task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. 
This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishop in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome. Uh, could you read the next one as well, please? Yet, this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but it is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it, at the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it, list, it listens to this devotedly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from the single deposit of faith. Okay, so that just described the, inter, the intertwined nature of sacred scripture. So it's not a three-legged stool that has one leg that's four feet, one leg it's two feet, and one leg it's only four inches. They're, they're all important, and they, they, you can't really have one without the other. We have, as I'm about to talk about, we have the books of sacred, the canon of scripture, we have that because the magisterium assessed what was in tradition, passed on and guided by the Holy Spirit, and made a definitive statement that that's what should be in the, the canon of scripture. That's one of the examples of how it worked. Um, okay, so... The Magisterium's role is to protect us, the church, from error, um, which can come about because of the misinterpretation of Scripture. I'll give you an example. It's an old one. I bring it up because it's so easy to remember. Some Christian groups say that you should not call your clergy father. And yeah, that's so they, it's because they don't understand what that scripture text is actually saying. And we'll cover that at some point. But that's, if you leave it up to people themselves, they misinterpret things. The Magisterium also expounds upon the truth of re what is um, revealed. It doesn't create revelation, but it clarifies and connects things for us using logic and um, and history, so that's sacred tradition and the fact that all things make sense, even if we don't understand them, they all make sense. So where did Christ give this authority to Peter and the apostles? Who would like to be a scripture reader for the evening? Randy, okay, I've volunteered. Matthew 16, verse... 13 to 20. Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20. Peter's confession about Jesus? Yes. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Thank you. Keep it open, because the next quote is from Matthew as well. Okay. So, for those of you who are looking at this in your own Bibles, some of you have got different translations, does it say, and I say to you, you are kind of a bit like a rock, and on you I'm going to build churches. Or does it say, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Right, so that's what the Greek says. In Aramaic, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Um, there's no, there's no way to turn the word rock into a masculine, it's a feminine word, without changing the word, which is what is being conveyed here. There's no ambiguity. You will find that some, some non-Catholic scholars have tried to make out that what Jesus is saying to Peter is, uh, you're a found, you're a, one of the foundation stones. And good for you. Any time in scripture that people have their names changed by God are always really important. Abraham, <laughs> Sarah, um, Simon, Peter. Um, any time that happens, it's really important. And he does say, I will build my church. So, that has always been taken to be that Peter, who is mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone else apart from Jesus by a long shot. So in the Gospels, I, I don't have it written down here, but I think in the four Gospels, Peter gets a name check 65 plus times. The next nearest is John, who gets something like seven mentions. So it's very clear the importance that, that Peter has in, in this. Um, so that's one statement of it. Right, if you could have a look at Matthew 18, 18. Just 18, one verse? Yes. Okay. And then I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Thank you. So when Jesus starts a sentence, I've mentioned this in homilies, when Jesus starts a sentence with, Amen, amen, or amen, I say to you. What does that mean? Pay attention, pay attention. Excellent, Cheryl, exactly. Listen here now. This is really important, right? That's his, he's not just saying howdy all. He's saying, listen, this is really important. So, going back to the previous text, when Jesus says to, to Peter, I will give you the keys, what is he talking about? What he's talking about is, he is appointing... Peter, as the Chancellor of the Kingdom. In the Old Testament, the, the, when they still had kings, the chosen people, the Chancellor had a whopping great big key that he would carry around. It was the mark of his office. The Chancellor did open, the, apparently, some big door into the treasury. So it was the mark of his office. And so this binding and loosing was also part of what the Chancellor did. The Chancellor was the arbitrator. You only got to the King if the Chancellor allowed you to get to the King. The Chancellor was the one who made the decisions. Then um, 
Luke chapter 10, verse 16, please. And this is Jesus talking to the apostles. 10, 16. 10, verse 16. 16, I didn't think there was a 16. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Well, that sounds like a pretty authoritative statement. If you don't listen to the apostles, you're not listening to me. So who are the modern day apostles? The bishops. Bishops. What is the fullness of priesthood here on earth? Oh, a bishop. A bishop. Bishop, not a priest. The, there are three levels of, of um, holy orders There's, uh, nowadays. There used to be more. Um, there's deacons, priests, and the fullness of it is bishops. Because they're the successors of the apostles. So it used to be that if a bishop was coming to your parish, you move, remove the Blessed Sacrament from the tabernacle into someone else because the focus of that would be the, the, the priest appointed by Jesus for the people, the bishop. And that would be the focus. Nowadays, do you know what we do nowadays? What we do? The tabernacle's off to No, 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 I know. What? what we do nowadays if the bishop comes. What oh, you're supposed we'll to light do. another candle. You light another candle, and that's to mark his office. That used to only be done during the Eucharistic prayer, but now they do it during the whole thing. Okay, John 20, 23. Again, this is speaking to the apostles. Whoever sin, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. So they've before received the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Verse 24. 23. Should start with receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, receive the oh. And when he said to that, um, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. And whose sins you retain are retained. Okay, that sounds like pretty powerful. Pretty important power that he gave them. Right. So, how do clergy know what sins, how are they able to know what sins have to be forgiven and not to be forgiven? No, there used to be directors. No, no, actually, more simple than that. Yes. So, how do I know if you're in a state of sin? Can I tell by looking at you? If you're Padre. (laughs) So, I know if you're Padre 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 So, how do I know, Roger? If you're in the state no. of sin. The priest depends on you. Right? Confession. What happens in confession? You tell me. That's why you have to go to confession. Because you can't have your sins forgiven without the priest knowing whether or not they should be loosed or bound. And it has to be done by telling them. That's just one aspect of it. That's um, the Confession is the sacrament that has also been... <coughs> changed the most over the, the centuries, but this was the conclusion that the Holy Mother Church came to, that you could not know which sins should not be forgiven if you didn't actually know what the sins were, since there are few, Padre Pio is one, there's been others, who can read souls. Imagine spending time hanging about with somebody who could read your soul. <laughs> yeah. Although, that may help you, obviously without you become a saint. Um, and then John 16, verses 13 to 15. 
John 16, 13 to 15. Oh, there it is. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will speak what he hears, and will declare to you the things that are coming. He will glorify me, because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I told you that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, so... That's again speaking to the, the the apostles. Are the apostles being just left to get up, gone with it themselves, to appoint themselves as pastors and just decide what is and what is not okay? What did we just hear there? <laughs> what did Jesus just say to his apostles? You want to read that again? Thirteen. Thirteen's um, in the middle. That's what. But when he comes, the Spirit... When he comes, the Spirit... Of truth. Right. So the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is guides all of this. Sacred Scripture, Sacred Tradition, Magisterium of the Church. All of it is guided by the Holy Spirit. Not just bits of it. All of it. If we have a Pope, the Holy Spirit picks a Pope. If we have a Pope and people don't like the Pope, then... You personally don't like the Pope, that's fine. But the Holy Spirit picked up that Pope, so it might be for a good reason that you might hopefully get lucky and get to heaven blessed, and you might find out. Sacred tradition is guided by the, the Holy Spirit. If you refuse these things, you are committing sins against the Holy Spirit. What are the sins that cannot be forgiven? Sins against the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us that. So, okay, now... <laughs> Well, we both Pam first. Yes, right. Well, if um, the Holy Spirit picks the Pope. Right. So the Holy Spirit guides the church. Right? The Holy Spirit guides the church. Right? Okay. So the, the, the election of a Pope is an infallible, I'm just going to get onto infallible, is an infallible act by the church, just like canonization is an infallible action of the church. Right? right. So, the Holy Spirit guides the church. What's your question? Has it ever failed? <laughs> you see, now what you're confusing is, now it's a good question, Pam, what you're confusing, because other people might be thinking the same thing. Have there been very poor quality popes? Mm-hmm. Yes. But has the teaching of the church ever been altered by any of them? No. no. And we've had some crazy, crazy like a moon dog, loon, whatever the expression would be in Kentucky. We've had some really strange um, characters as, as popes. We've had at least two popes who were probably heretics. Can you speak up about that? Should we just stay silent about our popes? About the present Pope. Well, see if, well, the, no, if a Pope says something, first of all, what you have to bear in mind here is that because something has been reported as being said by the Pope doesn't mean it's been said by the Pope, right? It could be badly translated. It can be taken out of context, right? Because that whole thing about who am I to judge thing with the Pope back, whatever that was, 10 years ago, that was completely taken out of context by secular media who were trying to make him out to be pro-gay. Do you know anything about Bergoglio? As he was. He is anything but 
dead straight again for the church teaching on everything. So, but if, so he had medieval times, like the 900s, we had some very strange, peculiar popes, really. Um, so, what the church used to do for that, do you remember I mentioned this at a weekday mass? What did the church used to do? Who's the patron of a happy death? So what did the church used to do? Or what did bishops do? They encouraged their faithful to pray a perpetual novena for a happy death for the Pope. So, if you feel that the guy we have got just now is, is causing problems or is difficult or is misguided or something like that, at the very least you should be praying for him if you feel you have to take stronger action than that that you can start the petrol novena for a happy death through St. Joseph for a happy death for the Pope okay, Sally did you say that if you like are talk against the Pope or you say I just can't stand the Pope, I don't mean this one I just mean any Pope and then you said because it was guided by the Holy Spirit of the election you said that can't be forgiven the, the sins because uh, it's against if you deny that the present Pope is the Pope that is a sin against the Holy Spirit. Okay. If you didn't deny that the present... Because there are priests that really stand up there and slam the Holy Father. You know, times. Yeah, and then that would be for them to go to confession and change their ways. Because how does that even help? Because if you didn't change your ways, then that sin is not forgiven. Absolutely, right? absolutely. That's all I want to know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and if a priest stands up and says something about the Holy Father, or his bishop, right, says something that is extremely negative, even if it's true. He also, to make amends for that, the priest should also publicly make amends for that. Because um, if a priest has got a bad mouth, his bishop, say I was to say, um, from the, during the homily, that our present bishop is godless, and he's telling people, and and frankly, he's on his way to hell. Right? That's That's an occasion of scandal for me to say that. Even if I think it. That's an occasion of scandal for me to say that to any of you. Even if I think it about the, the priest next parish, for me to stand up in public and say, he's crazy and he's going to hell, is an occasion of scandal, and, and it's not a charitable act. But the, the Holy Spirit uh, guides the church. So some people, there are people who don't think that John Paul should have been canonized. Right? There are people who, people who speak out against that. Right? There are people who don't think that Edith Stein should have been canonized because she died. They killed the Nazis, killed her because she was a Jew, not because she was a nun. Right? Um, there are people who say these, these things. Um, people need to be extremely careful for their own souls about whether, if they're going to badmouth the, the, the church in any way, shape, or form. But particularly people who are supposed to know better. Um, does that answer both your, your questions in that regard? So, um, I'll give you one that is something that uh, I'm sure I'm sure must have entered all your heads. I'm sure it, it must have. If the Holy Spirit, and we believe this is the case, the Holy Spirit guides the church. Why do abusers get ordained priests? Right? We all got to bear in mind this: that um, some of these these men who have who've, who've abused were not abusers until they were ordained, and then they would have been down a slippery slope. Some people spend a lot of time lying, and the other, but the overarching thing is, 
the Holy Spirit doesn't work on our time zone, right? Salvation history. God is out with time. So, I've met some very bad priests. I've been subjected, as my brother, Father Mark has, some very, very bad behaviour by priests and bishops. I wouldn't be here if I had not been subjected to horrendous treatment more than one occasion by bishops and superiors in religious life. I wouldn't be standing here now. I hope that at least one of you would be able to stand before God and say, he's been a good priest to me, Father. So if that was the purpose of it, then it's worth it for me to have gone through what I went through. Did I enjoy it at the time? No. But it taught me humility, it taught me how to offer things up, and it taught me to accept God's will. These are all, we have to, you have, we have to try and not look at the particular and look at the, the, the greater. And it's so difficult because, you know, if you lose a child, I don't know if that's happening to you, if you lose a child, then um, you think, why has God done that to me? But, but other people might see, years later, that was a pivotal moment in that person's life when they lost that child because that got them back online for God and they're one of the holiest people I know, for talking sake, right? And um, that's the that's how we have to try and look at it, and it's very difficult because if we're personally hurt, it's obviously I understand why people sometimes turn their back on the church because of how priests have behaved towards them. I get that, but actually, the person you're harming is you. You're not harming that priest. You're harming you, and you're actually you're harming all you're harming the body of the church. Because every single one of us that doesn't practice, every single one of us that isn't coming to Mass, lessens us all because we are we're the one body. But I understand, humanly wise, I've told this story before, I think, about um, a lady I was asked to go and see in one of the parishes I was in, and she stopped going to Mass in 2002 because of the Boston Boston Globe, is that what it's called? The, 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 well, the Boston newspaper when it broke the, the yeah, sun, yes. right? And her family had tried, um, and she just wouldn't go to church. And she'd refused to let other priests come into her house, but she was diagnosed with cancer. And they managed to talk her into letting me come to her house. So I went to her house, and I sat, and she was moderately abusive to me. Um, uh, it was one of those many occasions where I was so glad that I'd worked in ER. <laughs> because it was just water off the flag. Anyway, I said to her, Have you ever been abused? And she said, No. I said, Is any of your family? No. Do you know anybody that's been abused? No. Do you know anybody that's ever lived in Boston? No. Then why did you turn your back on God because of the wickedness of bad men? And she burst into tears. And she did, eventually, come back to Holy Mother Church. But she had spent, by that time, nearly 15 years convincing herself that what she was doing was somehow taking the moral high ground because of the bad, bad behaviour of, of priests. Um, do I understand why she did what she did? to a certain extent, why she did what she did. But she wasn't harming any of them. She was only harming herself and her family. And she was missed in the parish as well. That's why 
people kept on at her and on at her about about let Father come and see you. Um, so we need to, when we're looking, when we talk about how the Holy Spirit guides the church, don't look so much at the particulars. Just be aware that there's a plan which has been revealed. And we know what it is because God is sharing it with us. But the ultimate plan for all of us is for us to become saints. And that is, as I've told you before, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. You can't get through your prayers your children or your grandchildren into heaven. What you can do is by how you live your life, which praying would be a big part of that, is you can be an example that will make them practice the faith and get stronger in the faith to pass it on. You can be a hindrance or you can be a help, but you can't fulfill for them what they need to have themselves, which is a relationship with God themselves. And that's we need to be clear on that. That's why it's so important that we uh, speak out about and, and are strong in our faith when we're talking to those who we love. Okay. Does that explain it? Is that clear? Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So, can I cover infallibility in seven minutes? <laughs> <coughs> Maybe. Right. Um, Kitty, could you read out Number in the Catechism, number 92, please. The whole body of the faithful cannot care in matters of belief. This characteristic is shown in the supernatural appreciation of faith. Census, yeah, is that correct? Yeah, On the part of the whole people, when from the bishops to the last of the faithful, they manifest a universal consent in matters of faith and morals. Okay, so that's a really, I've mentioned this before, that's a useful thing to do. I've said this in homilies to you as well. What this is telling us is that it's not just the magisterium who keep this all right. It's us. It's the body of Christ. Yes, we have the head, but the body of Christ has a sense of what the faithful is. That's why you sometimes can go, again, this has probably happened to all of you, You'll go into a, a, a Catholic church somewhere you're visiting and you just get a bad feeling. You just think, this doesn't feel very Catholic. Um, that's that sense of fide, the sense of the faithful that, that people have. Um, it's the thing that stops normal Catholics from messing about with the faith. And it it's also seems to be the thing that many people, when they put on these, this, uh, when they put on clerics, seem to lose a bit. Could you also read out um, Article 891, please? 891. Okay. Um, the Roman Pontiff, correct? Yes. Head of the College of Bishops enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office when, as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful, who confirms his brethren in the faith, he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. The infallibility promised to the church is also present in the body of bishops when, together with Peter's successor, they exercise the supreme magisterium, above all in an ecumenical council. When the church, through its supreme magisterium, proposes the doctrine or belief as being divinely revealed, and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with the obedience of faith. 
This infallibility extends as far as the deposit of divine revelation itself. So that's the mechanism through which the canon of scripture, for example, was put together. Same with the doctrines about um, the dogmas about Our Lady. It wasn't just one or two people come up with them. It was the the magisterium of the church, so in, in conjunction with the, the Pope. So um, it's very rare for the, the Holy Father um, to speak um, in an infallible way. It's called ex cathedra. He actually has to be sitting in his chair in um, the John Latin, which is his church, and he has to then state clearly that he is speaking infallibly about things. Kind of ironically, one of the times he did it was with the the doctrine or dogma of infallibility. So it's a kind of circular argument. But that was in the 1880s. That was at Vatican I. Um, and then, could you also read 2035, please? 2035. I'm expecting one of you to shout out, House! Or bingo! (laughs) (laughs) The supreme degree of participation in the authority of Christ is ensured by the charism Charism. charism, of infallibility. Maybe he needs somebody else to read this. (laughs) (laughs) This infallibility extends as far as does the deposit of divine revelation. It also extends to all those elements of doctrine including morals, without which the saving truths of the faith cannot be preserved, explained, or observed. Okay, so uh, the Holy Father, his ultimate job is to make sure that we don't go off track and that we hold to what is revealed in sacred scripture, passed on to us by tradition and authentically upheld by the magisterium in the past. There's a, 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 an expression that came to the, the fore in the 1980s. It's a theological expression called a hermeneutic of discontinuity. Um, all you need to know about that is that, and we still have residual of this, where we have some people who decided that things that went before were only suggestions as opposed to actual teachings. And most of those people have disappeared since, um, certainly under the papacy of Pope Benedict, he managed to shut a lot of them up. There is still one place in America that is notorious for this kind of garbage, and it's in Chicago. And I know this will be broadcast, and it'll be in a podcast, and I'll probably get hate mail from them. The Chicago Theological Union is a disgrace. And it's not a new disgrace, it's a present disgrace. Um, one of their lectures in theology said that there was nothing wrong with these people pretending to be nuns making blasphemy of the cross and things like that, um, and that we should all just be a bit more light-hearted about that. So, he's a lecturer in theology. I hope it's not morals. <laughs> um, it's, it's a disgrace, and that's not the first thing that has come out of that place over the last few decades that are, that are terrible. Um, this is all part of the problem, which is why you've all met um, priests who will say some strange things that are not the teaching of the church. Um, a priest should be able to, whatever he, whatever he preaches on, I mean, this should be a no-brainer, right? A priest should be able to tell you after Mass where he got what he said from, and it shouldn't have been from in here. That's why I quote the Church Fathers, which we'll talk about 
um, so often, and I refer to Scripture, not because I expect you to take notes when I'm preaching, but because I need you to know that I'm not making this up. That what I'm talking, what I'm talking from, is called the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith is all of this is this the, the three-legged stool that has gone before us. It's been tried and tested. We have all lived through a time where um, people were trying to reinvent the wheel of the faith. See the things that um, whatever saint you're named after. See the things that got them to heaven. They're the same things that will get you to heaven. Right? You don't need all these newfangled, strange things. Uh, you just need to live according to what Holy Mother Church has always taught. If it was good enough for St. Thomas Aquinas, it should be good enough for us. <laughs> right? If it was, what is that, what's that, um, Protestant, American Protestant song? It's good enough for my father, it's good enough for me, give me that old time religion. <laughs> Isn't that a song? Isn't that a song? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yep. Praise God and pass the ammunition. Can you powder dry, Michael? I'll explain it later. <laughs> okay, so, <coughs> excuse me, next week I'm going to talk about typology and then how, what's these, what these are up here on this board here, I'll get to that, and how the canon of scripture eventually was put together using tradition and the magisterium of the church and the sense of fide, the, the, the sense of the faithful. Because this, in the creation of the Bible, that was really important, as we'll see as we, we cover that. Okay? Nearly done. So let's end with prayer for the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Thou forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in the consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. The night of the Archangel, us battle, we are safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits that prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen again to this or any other episode of Let's Talk Catholic at our blog, Let's Talk Catholic Podcast. .blogspot.com or you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or almost any other podcast provider. You can also like us on Facebook. Let's Talk Catholic is produced by Nick Medelsky and can be heard right here on Relevant Radio in Northern Michigan, Saturdays at noon.